Welcome to Manager Tools. Onboarding, Chapter 1, The Basics, Part 3. This cast answers these questions. What is onboarding? Why should I have a standard onboarding process? What are the basics of good onboarding? Well, if you want to answer these questions more, keep listening. Here we go. We're in part three of, uh, I don't know, I was going to say intricate, but not in intricate. It's just, there's just a lot to cover on onboarding. Today, we're going to talk about the five phases, close, welcome, prepare, admin, and ramp. Right. In the last two casts, we talked about a couple ideas, one one pretty basic one, an important one. And then in the first podcast, I shared a story where I didn't pay attention to this and got burned pretty badly. Um, that's until you got something. Yeah. And, and then we talked about, you know, the first 90 days. So could you just sum up that real quick for those who maybe haven't listened to part one and part two? Yeah, obviously, when you go through the process, uh, through the pain and suffering of hiring, um, uh, interviewing and sourcing and all that sort of stuff, you feel great when you get a, an acceptance, but far too many managers, once the offer is made, don't then close the sale. And then even after that, after they close the sale, they don't stay in touch. And then they may actually have something even worse, an acceptance followed by someone not starting. So onboarding is about taking care of a person who meets your standards until the point where they're starting to become effective for you. And that means, the second point, good onboarding systems usually go through the first 90 days. You just don't leave it to chance. This is not a series of unconnected behaviors. Everything from your first thought that I need to hire somebody until the time where that person is being effective. When you say it like that, you can see how all that's connected, but most managers don't behave that way. And the way you get better at this is you apply some discipline to it. Uh, that's our third point about discipline makes learning possible. You don't want to fall prey to horseman's Christmas rule, which of course is uh, something that you do rarely, like Christmas is annually, that is important to you. Generally speaking, you never get better at and and it's stressful. And that is generally true about hiring. It's true about interviewing. It's true about onboarding and so on. So the discipline of an onboarding process allows you to not think about the process and what does this person need to do or not need to do. You put one in place, you know it's only 80% accurate, and you revisit it at the end of every onboarding process and improve it. And because you're disciplined and you're looking at a process, you can see how each person's experience needs to make recommendations about changing the process. This is all just basic stuff. And I, we, I get a lot of questions, but you know, every person is different. Why would I need an onboarding process? I said, it's because every person is different because you'll do some things for one person and then not for another. And then that will be a weakness for that other person. And the whole point of this is high performance sooner, which gets you out of the hole that you were in, that you had to hire somebody that you have more clearly have more work than you have people. And why wouldn't you want somebody doing more of a full-time person's work sooner? Okay, so our fourth point is we're going to walk through the five phases. Close, welcome, prepare, admin, ramp of the onboarding process. So let's get to that. Yeah, so it's one process, right, if you think about it strategically. But there are different emphases as the candidate, new hire, employer moves through the timeline from offer to effectiveness. 
And the one that gets missed so often is closing the candidate. We have to communicate with candidates in ways that help them want to accept. I mean, I know a lot of managers say, no, really, it's their decision. I don't want to close them. And I'm not suggesting full court press. I'm not suggesting. It's like a salesperson saying, like, it's it's their decision. I don't don't want them to purchase. I don't don't need to communicate with them. I've told them everything they need to know. And, you know, it's up to them. And this is a classic uh, high D, high C kind of thing. But again, as I said earlier, it makes no sense to go through the process of interviewing and hiring or I'm sorry, interviewing and all that other stuff, and then not get a hire because you didn't close the candidate, you didn't communicate with them. And further, if you start doing that and then you do it serially, you don't think I'm going to interview two or three people and maybe two or three people meet the standard. Now you're in a pickle because now your productivity's shot. For those who aren't familiar with the term close, I mean, it's it's a sales term, right? Generally speaking, how does a manager know when they've closed? How does a manager know when to close? No, when when they have closed. What's the result one's looking for to know that you've closed the person? Oh, they've accepted your offer. Right. They said yes. Yeah. Yeah, they said yes. Yeah, sorry. I thought that was... I'll, I'll slow down if you want. <laughs> to take it. <laughs> yeah, we want to close. We, we, we want the candidate, you know, a close almost, well, generally speaking, in commercial conventions and conversation is... When there is an unanswered ask, um, and it closes to get the person to answer your ask the way you want them to, generally speaking, with a yes. Now, that's the first part, and most managers leave this out, and they don't communicate, and maybe multiple people on the team aren't communicating, which is dumb. Because again, you're already in for a penny. You might as well be in for a pound. Otherwise, you're starting over and you wasted the penny. Once they have accepted, now you've got a process of welcoming the person. Now we're talking about multiple people on the team reaching out. Guys, it doesn't matter that the person whom you're hiring is a high C and uh, doesn't seem to be warm or personable or interested in interpersonal connections and so on. You stay in touch regularly throughout the period from acceptance all the way through start. And this, by the way, this is really where we start getting into these, these phases they overlap a little bit. They blur together because there will be some welcoming occurring even as the next phase or two happen. Maybe there's a site visit in there in terms of welcoming them. Uh, Maybe there's a house hunting trip, work to be shared, all that kind of stuff. Then you have to prepare them. And we prepare them. Again, it probably happens, well, it mostly happens after we're welcoming them or put differently, welcoming starts first. And because the first thing you do after somebody says yes is you don't send them a bunch of forms to sign. So mostly after we start welcoming them, we start to prepare them as much as we can for their first days. Anything we can do that is not administratively burdensome, that offloads anything they would have to do, let's say, in the first 90 days to something they can do before they start, frees up work time during those 90 days. Everything that's administrative or out of your control that happens during that first 90 days that is them not working, is them not being productive. All right. So in case if somebody was going to come and say it was a sales position and there was a, a new territory you'd want them to go after, then part of the preparation would be having them come up with the plan and the strategy 
and the 250 step plan on how they were going to attack that territory, right? That's, that's what you mean by preparation. I, I'm all for that. It's awesome. No, I'm good. I really am going to talk slower now. No, folks. The answer, Mark's, Mark's down there was no, no, Mike, that's stupid. Yeah, no. Uh, let me check it again. No, yeah, no. Okay. There may be admin that can be done in advance. There is work that could be shared in advance, although I don't think coming up with a strategic proposal for a new sales territory is a good sharing process. Uh, there might be background on the work that your team does. And I often hear or I see little warning bells in managers' heads that there are concerns about security here. And I absolutely agree with that. There are times where you can't share things with someone outside but don't assume that security prohibits any communications about work status, work progress, programmatic updates, and so on. It is amazing to me how many managers assume that nothing can be shared with accepted hires who haven't started. I've heard that so many times that it is so wrong. Right? <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't. Um, typically, I'm sure it's a very well-intentioned HR person saying, yeah, no, we don't do that. Or if they don't have a work email address, you can't talk to them about work. Well, wait a minute. You've already talked to them about work. You interviewed them. You gave them examples from their job. You told them about the job and what they'd be doing and who they'd be working with. You answered their questions about the company, some in quite detail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make sure, if in fact you're going to not share anything, that that really is the rule before shutting them out of getting a chance to ramp them up early. And don't assume that someone saying to you, I'm not sure you can do that, is in order not to. I don't know. In my experience, when someone says to me, I'm not sure you can do that, I don't take that as gospel. I don't see that as an order. I'm like, hey, good, good info. Yeah, your ID. <laughs> Even if they said you couldn't do it, you wouldn't take it. Yeah, if one of my directs heard me say, I'm not sure you can do that, I assume what they would say is, okay, boss, thanks for not saying no. Now, it may, guys, we're kidding a little bit. Find out more. There's all kinds of things you can do. It, it, look, this is probably seditious for many managers to hear, but if you're sharing work stuff to your home email address because you're not the CAA, the Department of Defense, or something like that, or the FSB, you can probably share it with someone else's home email address. Now, you may think, I don't know that person well enough. I'm, you know, I technically get in a lot of trouble if they had this document. Okay fine, then maybe you made the wrong hire or, okay, fine. Do a screen share and walk them through the deck that you don't want to email them and brief them on it. So they come up to speed. Folks, we're not asking you to be stupid. If you work at Apple, you're not going to share, you know, schematics and details of the next iPhone that hasn't been released. Yes. Probably shortly before their start date, and maybe a lot before their start date, but certainly before. And then for some time afterwards, you start taking care of admin. Most managers think of admin as being what onboarding is about. Okay? And it, look, it's certainly important. You can't work in most organizations without a badge and some forms filled out. And you certainly can't get paid if you don't work. And heck, you can work and not get paid if you don't fill out a direct deposit form or something. So admin's necessary. But, but again, it's not sufficient. The whole point of onboarding is not to get the admin done. It's to get the direct effective. And the last phase, which overlaps admin, and maybe even some degree welcome, is ramp. 
uh, I'm sorry, welcome and, and prep as well, uh, is ramp. Ramp is really as close to the purpose of onboarding as any of this stuff. It could actually start earlier than admin in some ways, but it's become the clear focus in the early days after you knew your new hire's start date. Certainly, things you learned earlier, even during interviewing, could be useful during ramp, right? There are choices you might make about how you would ramp them based on what you know about them. Uh, some people, you want them in a lot of meetings. Other people are not meeting people, and so you'd wait. And you'd say, I'll have in less meetings, and I'll have you doing more email or something else. And ramp as a phase comprises activities to accelerate your new hire's performance improvement. I'm going to say it again, performance improvement. I'm going to say it again, productivity. I'm going to say it again, performance. It assumes most admin is done when you're doing ramp, but they'll be done side by side. Although it will start to irritate you after 60 days when somebody in corporate or admin somewhere is still calling your person to do this or that or the other thing, because you're going to start thinking, gosh, you know, they've been here a while. We should be out of this. And ramp is where all those support staff, the AT, the IT, the HR, the security, the, and so on, legal and so on, where they usually melt away. And now it's really clear that it's your job to make the new guy useful as fast as you possibly can. And it is in that moment that really the true value of what we've been talking about here in terms of onboarding is revealed. And we have questions from the audience that have come in. Well, I don't think we dreamed that this cast would be this long, but uh, we find it interesting. And, and uh, uh, so we're delving in a little bit more detail in this overview cast in chapter one. Um, but one of the questions we got is, hey, it actually wasn't much of a question, but more along the lines of, is this my job or is this HR's job? And the answer, of course, is, oh, no, it's your job. <laughs> and often HR will act as if, no, we're in charge. We have a standard process, but nobody's in charge of making your people effective other than you. Yeah. Or you can think that, but that's, that's dangerous. Yes. Well, you thinking it doesn't make it so. Doesn't make it, well, yeah, no, it doesn't change whether it's true or not. It just will affect uh, the ultimate outcome, <laughs> put it yes. that way. So I think it's interesting. Let's talk a little bit about, for me, there's an interesting transition from interviewing, right? Where in interviewing, I'm almost, almost completely focused on weaknesses. I'm looking for reasons to say no, given the context and what the person is going to be doing, right? So yeah. I'm a high C folks, so um, I don't have to work real hard to focus on weaknesses and problems and all that, just ask Mark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that doesn't seem to me very useful after somebody has joined, right? To like continue to focus on weaknesses. Tell me about that. Yeah, so this is an interesting one because it's almost a theoretical one for a lot of managers because most managers don't understand that they're supposed to be looking for weaknesses in interviewing. And yet we get emails all the time from managers say, you know, it's unbelievable, I, I found this fantastic candidate. And I, the reason I did was I started looking for weaknesses from, from other people. And I discovered that people that I liked, you know, that I clicked with had all kinds of weaknesses that I would not have seen had I not gone looking for them. Yeah. The fundamental premise of interviewing is to find a reason to say no, because the time you don't want to find a reason to say no is after you've already hired somebody. The reason that's a problem in, the, in, in this cast, in the context of onboarding, is too many managers are not doing that. 
And so this guidance may be confusing to them, but I can edit it a little bit for those folks who just do normal interviews, which are not good interviews. If you're doing it the manager tools way, you're looking for weaknesses. But in the same way that we talk about murdering the unchosen alternative, and in a way, professional subordination, as you're interviewing, you're trying to find reasons to say no. If you don't find any reasons to say no, and you decide to say yes, your thinking needs to change. I mentioned this to somebody a few weeks ago at a client, and they said, well, that, that's really hard. I don't, I don't see my my thinking is changing, you know, uh, 180 in situations. I said, wait a minute, you're saying that when the company's doing good, you're not looking for opportunities to grow and try to hire staff and so on. And then when there's a downturn, you're not looking to cut staff, reduce budget and avoiding new projects and so on. So you can make sure, well, yeah, that's true. Wait a minute. When a project is on track, you're not thinking about whether or not you can take some resources from it or rearrange some things. Whereas a project's off track, you're not thinking about how to add people to it and so on. I mean, there's all kinds of things where your fundamental assumptions flip from one side to the other, depending upon the context and the situation and so on. And this is one of those things. But because we're talking about an individual, it's hard for people to see the, I'm going to be kind of not your friend as I'm interviewing you. Look, I can be nice. I can be warm. I can be personal. We talk about all the time in interviewing. You want to be a, a good, a nice, fair, reasonable person when you're interviewing. You can interview with a smile and still encourage and enforce high standards as a way of protecting your people. And you can do that. And if you're doing that with a person, you get used to looking for weaknesses. And then as you're onboarding them, you continue to be an analytical, critical kind of person about the person. That is not to say we don't want you to see blaring weaknesses, and we certainly don't want you to miss when the candidate is perfect during the process and then afterwards becomes a jerk. That happens. It's rare, but it happens. But again, if you can't find a reason to say no, and you take a step back and look for reasons to say yes, and once the person is over the wall that we built, that high wall that we built, we want them to be part of the team. We're not constantly critical of our people. Yes, we're aware when they make mistakes and so on. But part of the value of the purpose of saying no in interviews is to build that high wall around your organization. Every new hire must be good or better than, uh, must be good as or better than your organization. Otherwise, you're hurting the organization. In fact, one of my favorite political jokes is, a really dark joke where one person left one political party to join the other one. And a wag remarked that the average IQ of both parties had improved. But look, if you build a high wall, it sends a message to those inside the wall that high standards are being applied to their potential future colleagues. That's respectful of your, of your team. And new hires who make it over the high wall are more likely to be trusted and respected earlier by their new colleagues, which is part of onboarding. If you continue to look for negatives, you're treating this person as if they're still being interviewed rather than as a part of the team. And once they say yes, they're part of the team. Again, yeah, you can see weaknesses. We don't want you to shut down. You know, we don't want you to put blinders on. But finding weaknesses, always parsing everything everybody says and looking for chinks in their armor won't be your focus. And if it is your focus, you're going to communicate that to other people. It'll affect that new employee's ramp speed and, and damages early relationships and so on. 
So once somebody has accepted, they're over the wall. They're on the team. Maybe they're new, but they're not still a candidate. Maybe they haven't started yet, but they're on the team. They're a part of the team. In fact, if, if somebody left another organization, they're missing their old team in, to some degree, even if they didn't like the job that they left. If they can miss a team, then they appreciate what it's like to be a part of the team, and you want them ramped, in this case, emotionally, as soon as possible. Yeah, and referring to them as the new guy all the time doesn't speed that up. That is so bad, yeah. The phrase, the new guy, will last a lot longer than it should in most cases. In fact, I used to tell people, no more new guy, okay? He's us. I was at a place one time, they're referring to the new guy. It's kind of odd because he seemed to know what was going on. So I asked him, like, how long have you been here? He said, oh, about a year. <laughs> like a year, he's still the new guy. Yeah, if there's low turnover, right, and not a lot of new hires, you know, he's the baby of the team in the stupid family analogy that people use. Right. And it's not the problem that he's the new guy, right? The implication is the new guy doesn't know what's going on. That's exactly. that's the implication that people get. Not that he's new. Yeah, no, he's wet behind the ears. And you're making him not part of the team. You're part of the team, but you're not. You're special. You're the weak link on the team. It creates this sort of pseudo probationary period. And, you know, if you're not on the team, while we're interviewing you, we're very cautious. But once we offer and you say yes, we're in a way we're married to use again the stupid family aspect. How how does it build trust to say? In fact, newlyweds. The term newlywed is a term of endearment. Bride is a term of endearment, but new guy, no, not smart. One of the benefits of a, a process being it's repeatable, right? But you have a series of steps that you can communicate and keep track people on on track and on board and. All that, so it kind of leads to our next point, which is communicate and report on the process. Yeah. You know, a lot of people rebel at the idea of a process. And I think part of the rebelling is a process is somehow repeated. And if you're going to repeat something, particularly six months apart, you're going to have to document it. But one of the great benefits of a process that is documented, or I should just say just a process, is greater ease in communicating status and reporting progress. And because of the Christmas rule, we do this rarely and we, therefore we do it, and it's important, so therefore we do it poorly. Sometimes a documented process helps team members remember what they're supposed to be doing. It's simple as that. Oh, I'm sorry, what do we, what do, we do? You know, and if every single time you hire somebody, you're thinking, what do we do? You're going to be bad at it. Not only are you going to be bad at it each time, you're not going to get better. And that's really bad if you go through a time when you onboard two or three or four or five people. Now you're really bad at it. When in fact, you really need, if you're hiring that many people, you really need effectiveness soon. Look, um, part of the reason you document the process and get it out of your head is because if you're the only person doing a process, maybe you can justify I don't believe you can, but maybe you think you can. The idea that the process is in your head and you, you remember previous ones and so on. But look, if you're the manager, you may be responsible for all this, but you can't possibly be trying to do all of it yourself. Our onboarding checklist has 100 things on it. You're going to keep all those in your head? 
And if others are going to be involved in the onboarding, and of course they are, there's there's corporate people, there's staff people, there's and so on. You oughtn't have to be asking them constantly whether they're, what they're supposed to do is done and where they are in the process and, and what they're supposed to be doing. A smart spreadsheet or smart sheet, for those of you who use it, or whatever project tracking software you use is an easy way to document it. And by the way, it doesn't have to be terribly full-featured. The one we're going to share where we lay out a template for everybody to, to use and we'll share the document, the, the smart uh, spreadsheet uh, for licensees is fairly straightforward. It's not fancy, but it makes it clear when something's done and not done by a given deadline. And look, why not include the new hire? Why not? Why not say to the new hire, "You're on the team. You're being onboarded. You keep track. You let me know when you're supposed to be doing X or Y or Z." Or if you're not going to be in charge of it, fine, I'm in charge of it, but you can update the reporting system on a daily basis so that I can go check. That's a way of you talking to me about how you're doing. I'm not suggesting you do that, folks. I'm suggesting no one does, and why don't they? And all of that, documenting the process, having a timeline and so on, allows each onboarding experience to be tracked. And that's exciting because now we have data about how the process worked. And maybe we discover that in our head, this is a D plus 90 process, right? That in 90 days will be done and will achieve effectiveness. And yet we discover that really at D plus 60, they've gotten all uh, everything they can out of the onboarding process. And so we can shorten it. And now we have 30 more days of closer to full productivity uh, than we would have had we not documented the process and followed it and reported on it and communicated and so on. And by the way, folks, we don't suggest that after 90 days, your, your person is at 100% productivity and they're not going to grow anymore. Of course not. And of course, 100% productivity doesn't preclude growth generally, even though a lot of people mistakenly believe it does. But what we're trying to do is get over the hump of the significant valley or hump that people, depends on your analogy, that people have to go through when they're joining an organization. And you might as well invest early because every day you move them closer to full productivity is another day for the rest of the time they're working for you that they're there or at a higher level. And look, if you're going to have a documented process and you're going to take people through it, that means when you're done, you do a professional hot wash. And it doesn't take more than 15 minutes, folks. If you don't know what a hot wash is, I think it's one of our Hall of Fame casts. If it's not, it should be. And you could look up hot wash or after action report on manager-tools.com or scroll through your iPod or your phone and find it. And if we're smart in that hot wash, we make decisions on the spot. We have someone editing the process live during the meeting on a TV or a big screen if you want, so everybody can contribute. And I mentioned, you know, about providing a, a process for licensees. We're going to publish a version zero of it, a draft for everybody, which you'll change probably 30 or 40%, but you'll be able to download it if you're a licensee and use it for your first draft and improve it with hot washes. And what's more, we're hoping that licensees will... Uh, take advantage of a space we're going to create for licensees to share their own, either from our template or others, with the expressed intent of sharing them with people in our community. 
And, you know, that could be really useful for different industries or specialized roles. And look, if you're not a licensee, we'll, we'll talk you through the podcast, the, the process in our pod, free podcast as usual, but we're putting some work into formalizing and making available the version zero. And so that'll be withheld for licensees. Wendy and I were talking about it and I said, you know, we're sitting here talking about this process and we're going to try to describe this verbally. And she said, yeah, I think we can do it. I said, yeah, but if you were a listener, you know, if you were a licensee, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we give it to you? She's like, yeah, that's a great idea. So dude, that's it. Just uh, three casts to get through it. But wait, there's more. There's more. We asked um, very early on for people's questions. And so I think, Mark, you have something like 15 pages worth of questions and all that. Yeah, questions and comments. So it's not, you know, 100 questions. But, right. But they're good questions. Some people sent in five, six, seven questions that they wanted us to answer. I think we've answered some of them, but because the questions are slightly shaded differently, if you weren't here on the first cast, folks, Mike actually mentioned that if this is a multi-part cast and people have questions, why don't we ask in the first cast for questions? You don't stop learning when you get old. You get old and you stop learning because it's been 13 years, right? This is right. We're about to come up on our 13th year of podcast every week, and we just now figured that out. Yeah, so I, I think it's going to be very useful, and I, I think we learn as we go through different – I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about management consulting, folks, if you don't know it, that just every client we contribute a lot we also learn a lot every single time it's just the number of combinations permutations of of scenarios is just for me always fascinating just slight little wrinkles so going through those questions i think will be very helpful in folks thinking through their their specifics and learning a little bit more so we're at i don't know a little over 30 minutes so i think we do that next week and we'll make part four really really getting to some of the detailed questions uh, that people have about this process. Okay, good. Thanks, partner. All right, my friend. We'll see you later. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long.